lovely to have you all here this morning to continue our look at the book of Revelation. You might like to turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be looking at 9 and following. But as you're doing that, I want to ask you a question. The question is, what did Jesus look like in the flesh? I know you've seen paintings around that give him blonde hair and blue eyes. Not much uh, like a Jew. Lots of artists have had to try that. And what doesn't help is that nowhere in the scripture do we have a, a physical appearance described to us about, uh, with Jesus and his earthly ministry. The closest we have to a description of our Lord is in Isaiah 53 verse 2 where it says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. We can say from this that there was nothing in the Lord's uh, appearance to attract people to him or to make them think that he was extraordinary in any other way. And that's how the Lord ministered here on this earth as a, a Jewish man who was nothing to look at. He had no stately form. He had no stately majesty. He, his appearance didn't attract people to him. And so I guess we will keep on wondering what he looked like in the flesh. But scripture does provide an awe-inspiring portrait of our glorified Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in Revelation chapter 9, uh, chapter 1 verses 9 to 20. The inspired look of our glorified Lord, the risen Lord. Not the Lord who was here ministering on this earth, who uh, had no stately form of majesty. In fact, this vision that John had could, be, could not be further from that fact. We're going to break this passage into three sections. We're going to look at the circumstances of the vision, what was happening around as the vision was taking place, the content of the vision. We're going to look at what we see and why it's there and the descriptors that we have. But more importantly, what are the consequences of the vision? Why is it there? What's the point to us to have this vision of Christ uh, that is revealed to us? This morning is all about the vision of the glorified Christ. That's what this, uh, this talk is all about. But let's first look at the circumstances as we come into the scripture. We like to teach and take each verse as we teach and so the first look at that we have is this, the circumstances around the vision. Now physically, John says in verse 9, this is his, his physically he's saying in verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now I think John is writing this to underline his identity. He wanted to uh, to show his readers that he was the same as them. He says, your brother and fellow partaker, partaker in the tribulation. Why did he start that way? Why did he have to tell them that he was their brother and, and he was part of the tribulation? And the reason is because the people who were going to read this, even though he was suffering on Patmos, his readers were suffering under the leadership of Domitian for the sake of Christ. And he wanted to identify with that as he started off. I'm the same as you. Indeed, as brothers and sisters in Christ, all of us 
all of us here this morning who are born again believers, if we are living godly lives, if we are following our Lord, we will suffer tribulation for our faith. Now we may not be transported to some island, although I believe Patmos is quite a nice island these days, it's a bit of a tourist resort, so I don't think I'd mind going there now, but we probably won't get taken away to an island. But at school, at work, even with our family, which can be the hardest group to be with, we will suffer in different ways because of the Word of God and the testimony that you show of Jesus Christ. In fact, I'll tell you, the only way that you won't be suffering in this world is if you're flowing in the same direction as the world. I remember a t-shirt, I don't remember if I bought it, but Karen showed me the the, these fish going in this direction, they had all the, the gnarly teeth and the ones with the little thing up here and they were just vicious fish, all flowing that way. And here's this little fish in the middle flowing against the flow. And it was a great t-shirt to show that you know, we are against the flow of the world. And if you are against the flow of the world and you stand up for the testimony of Jesus Christ, you will face tribulation. As I said, it may not be an island, but it will be in your own way, a tribulation. You will suffer. John wasn't going with the flow of the world. He was going against the world. He was going against the mission. And and the the scripture tells us that he was there on Patmos, Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he didn't stop when he was told to. He just kept going. And so he's on, the, he's on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Christ. But I want to tell you that he was just where God wanted him to be. That's the beauty of this, this whole idea of suffering and being where God wants us to be. I've often said I'd rather be in the middle of a lion's den in God's will than in some tropical island out of God's will. And here he was in God's will on the island of Patmos. So this is John's physical circumstance of the vision. He was on the island of Patmos and he was there because of his uh, ministry of the word and he just didn't stop it. But there was also some circumstances in his spiritual life because verse 10 says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now I'm not going to get too caught up in this. You can read books on those two words, in the Spirit and on the Lord's Day. But I'm not going to get caught up in it. This is not the main subject of the text. The vision is. I don't want to distract from that. So I'll simply put, I was, in the Greek it translates to, I came to be in the Spirit. This is what John says, I came to be in the Spirit. Now if you're a Christian, you cannot come to be in the Spirit. Why can't you come to be in the Spirit? Because as a Christian, the Spirit of God lives within you from the time that you were born born again. So you cannot come to be in the Spirit. The Spirit of God does not jump in and jump out of your body. So that's not what John was talking about here. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit coming upon him in that sense. In fact, the use here of I came to be in the Spirit is used four times in the book of Revelation. And it's only used in the book of Revelation. Just turn with me to chapter 4, verse 1. We'll see it used again. 
chapter 4, verse 1 of Revelation. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was or I became in the spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Even from that you can see that the first three chapters were one vision. Chapters 4 to to the end are another vision because he's taken in 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 the same state. And so I have to put an answer to it. I believe I came to be in the spirit. Maybe denotes something like a trance. We've seen it before. If you've read the book of Daniel, you'll find many times that Daniel got to that point when he was in a vision, he could not move. He lay there as dead. And we'll read that in a little while. But whatever this is, this coming to be in the spirit, it's certainly a state in which John is especially opening, open to the, to the Holy Spirit and the vision that is coming to him. And so it's in this state of coming to be in the Spirit that John sees the magnificent vision of the Lord. But first he hears a loud voice in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I, I simply in passing think the Lord's Day is Sunday. I don't want to go any further than that. You can, you can, uh, you can read books and decide for yourself on that, but it's, it's just a waste of time. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now please understand, this is the first time that you have seen a simile in the book of Revelation and from now on you will see nothing but similes. Very important uh, idea the simile is. They begin here. You see, it wasn't a trumpet that John heard. It was a voice like a trumpet. That's what a simile is. It's a word picture so that we can understand better the reality of what someone is seeing or hearing. That's why you use similes. And so the voice that John heard was like a trumpet. So you tell me, what was a trumpet like? What would you, in your mind, what is a trumpet like? Loud? When you hear a trumpet, what's the... Powerful? Can't come up with anything else. Okay, well that's good, loud and powerful, that's nothing wrong with that. You could say, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud and powerful voice. Whatever you want to hear, you think a trumpet sounds like, that's what this voice sounded like. Powerful, very loud. And this is what the voice said in verse 11. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And so the first thing John hears from this uh, vision that he hasn't even turned around yet, he's hearing it from behind him, is a command to write a book. It's his commissioning to write this book, or at least the first three chapters of this book. Because as we read in chapter 4, he then again, after he goes into that translate state again and get called up into heaven. And so he is to write what he sees and sends it 
send it to the seven churches that God has selected. Now, I'm not going to go through these seven churches because that's what I'll be doing as I go into chapters 2 and 3, so there's no point in discussing them here, except I want to say that the Lord is saying something to each of the churches that is still very relevant for you and I today. (coughs) Those seven churches, I have no idea why the Lord picked them. I'm sure there was more than seven in in that area. But the Lord has chosen uh, seven to write this letter to. But when we get there, don't think that it's just for those churches and it's happening uh, today as well. So John's on the Isle of Patmos having become in the Spirit and he's been given a commission to write what he's going to see. (coughs) So let's, let's look at the content of the vision now. But before we go on, I want to you to remember what this book is all about. Now we discussed that several weeks ago. What is this book all about? Someone like to tell me. Thank you, Kevin. The unveiling or revealing of Jesus Christ. This is the first time in this book that the, the risen Lord has been revealed. Up until now, there's been no revelation of the risen Lord. And so revelation is this apocalyptic, which is, if you remember, that's not the word for, for, for trouble, it's the word of revealing, And so the Lord is being revealed in this book. And what better way to start than for the risen Lord to to reveal his glory and his majesty and his power, not only to John and his readers, but to us 2,000 years later. (coughs) This has never been seen before. This is a revealing of Christ. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Let's look at these implements, or the the idea of the lampstands. Let's not get confused about it, because go down to chapter 1, verse 20, And we're told what the seven lampstands are, so we don't have to guess or make it up. Look at Revelation 1.20. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which we haven't seen yet, we'll get to, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angel of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, as John turns around, he sees seven lampstands, which are the light of the churches. (coughs) You see, symbolically, each local church, including ours, should be the bearer of God's light in this dark world. Some churches aren't. Some are. And this is what chapters 2 and 3 are all about, which we'll look at as we get to them. We'll see that in detail in in those chapters. Even if you'd like to just move down to chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, if you think uh, it's, not, it's not important, these lampstands, Revelation 2 verse 4, But I have this against you, and that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first, 
or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand. I'm going to get into more detail then, but basically I'm going to remove that lamp. You won't be the light of me anymore. We'll look at that closer later on. Suffice it to say, John turns around, he sees seven lampstands which represent the seven churches. Uh, Why seven? Don't know. Speculate, but I believe today, even today, the Lord is in the midst of his churches and we have a lampstand. Whatever churches there are, the Lord is in the midst of them. Jesus Christ is in the midst of his church and represented, if you like, by a lampstand. But what about the one like the Son of Man standing in the middle of the churches? Who is he? Now we all know it's Jesus Christ, we say to ourselves, and and rightly so. One like the Son of Man. But how does John know to describe this person as one like the Son of Man? How does he know the people he's writing to would have a clue who one like the Son of Man is? What does one like the Son of Man mean to you? Where have you seen it before? Have you seen it before? Have you seen the Messiah described like that? If I had had the time, I would have taken you through the book of Daniel before teaching Revelation. And the reason is because Daniel and Revelation are sister books. They work hand in hand. So we're going to do a lot of looking back into Daniel as we go through the book of Revelation. If you don't understand Daniel, you will have trouble understanding Revelation. And if you have trouble understanding Revelation, you won't understand Daniel. So could I commend the book of Daniel to you in your quiet time? It's compelling reading, it's great reading, and uh, it's a book that we need to have studied to really get everything out of Revelation, but we'll go back to it every now and then. And the first time we're going to go back to it is now. If you'd like to turn to Daniel chapter 7. And if you have a little bookmark, you might like to leave it in Daniel because we're going to go back there a couple of times. But it's here in Daniel that we will begin to understand what John understood when he turned around. What the people understood when John says, looks like one like the Son of Man. This is Daniel as he reads in chapter 7 verse 13. And he's in a vision at the moment himself. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days. So who's the Ancient of Days? I can't hear. God. You're allowed to yell out. If you're going to get an impeached little little thing here, we have to yell out. Yes, the Ancient of Days is God. So one like the Son of Man was coming And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that is, the one like the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So who is Daniel seeing in this vision? Who has been given dominion and glory and the kingdom? (coughs) Whose uh, dominion will never pass away? Whose kingdom will never be destroyed? And we all say the Messiah. Whom we happen to know now is the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't know 
who it was at that stage. They knew that someone was coming as the Messiah. That was the whole thing they were waiting for. And unfortunately, some Jews are still waiting for the Messiah, which is sad for them. But the Messiah was given that description. Now, Daniel's going to go later on to explain the Son of Man in more detail. But let's go back to Revelation chapter 1. Leave your finger in Daniel there. And we'll go back to 13. And the reason that John would describe him like that is because his readers knew the Old Testament. His readers would have known Daniel very well, like we should know Daniel very well. And John was able to let his readers know that the person that stood before him was indeed the one who has dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, all nations of men of every language will serve him. And that's how John, (coughs) just in three words, described the person who was standing before him. The Son of Man. Verse 13, And in the middle of the lampstands I saw the Messiah is basically Jesus Christ. And he was clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with golden sash. John describes his clothing. What about his clothing? Well, simply put, the one like the Son of Man, his clothing is that of a judge and a king. One with honour. One with authority. This is in fact the Lord's position in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, he is not now in his earthly ministry where he came to die for each of us for our sins and propitiation for our sins. He is now, as he turns around to this vision, he is judge and he is king. That's what John is seeing. He's not seeing Jesus as he was, he's seeing Jesus as he is right at this moment, even now. And in this book, in this book of Revelation, The Lord Jesus Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead, as the book of Daniel said. His dominion is everlasting. So after he turns around, after he describes him as the the Messiah, as the Son of Man described in Daniel, who is come as king and judge, just in in that one verse, John goes on to describe Jesus. And he's describing him as the judge and the king because that's what these descriptors are all about. Look at verse 14. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. Now sometimes we think, oh, he just had white hair. Please turn with me again to Daniel chapter 7. I want to give a, get a clearer picture of what John is revealing of Christ here. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. This white hair symbolises Christ's eternality. His comparison with the Ancient of Days, his comparison with God and the fact that he is God. Go back to Revelation chapter 1 verse 14. We'll see the second descriptor. His eyes were like a flame of fire. They weren't a flame of fire. They were like a flame of fire. Just as a cross-reference, look at Revelation chapter 19 
uh, verse 12. There it says, His eyes were again like a flame of fire. Same person, same description. And again, look at chapter 2, verse 18 of Revelation. Again, to one of the churches, to Thyatira, this is what the, he wrote to them. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. Very descriptive. Again, as you think about it, what, what could John be seeing? Like fire, like they'd be piercing eyes, they'd be scary eyes. What do they represent? Well, the fact that nothing will stand in, our, in, our, in the way of the Lord's piercing judgment of sin. You might like to turn to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 or just listen as I read two verses. Most of us uh, know Hebrews 4.12. It's a, a verse that I learnt as a memory verse but never got to 13 very often. But Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature, this is the one I want to bring out, there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do Eyes like fire, piercing, nothing can stand in his way. Everything is laid bare to the eyes of Jesus Christ. That should scare us a little bit. Nothing you think, nothing that is inside you, your thoughts, everything is laid bare to the Lord. His eyes were like a flame of fire. The third descriptor, his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in the furnace. Bright, burnished bronze. What's that all about? Well, if you remember, if you went through the book of Exodus, the brazen altar was the place where the fire consumed the sin offering. This is a, a type of typology of suggest judgment. See, in the book of Revelation, the Lord has come to judge and rule. As I've just read, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Then we have a fourth descriptor. Carries on from the simile of the trumpet in verse 10. The end of verse 15 says, And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now, I don't think I understand this one very well. I've never been to Niagara. I've never experienced that noise that apparently is deafening if you're standing on top of Niagara or even Victoria Falls in uh, in Africa at the bottom. I've never never experienced that. But what I have experienced is the pounding sea and on a on on a uh, stormy day hitting the rocks and just swooshing up, and the power that those waves has, the the noise that it can make. But if you've been to Niagara, maybe you understand that noise. Well, this is the noise of his voice. It's booming out. You could say it's a voice that just stops you in your track. You hear this voice and you you just stop. It's a voice that paralyzes you with power and authority. It is that type of voice. 
Now, I'm not comparing my dad to the Lord, but when my dad yelled, I stopped. He looked, I stopped. I think of much in the same way. Maybe uh, the voice, that massive voice that stops you in your track. Then we have a fifth descriptor. In his right hand he held seven stars. Now we've already read that in verse 20, so I didn't even have to guess what these seven stars are, but you'd like, let's remind ourselves by going to verse 20. And it says, the mystery, now I didn't stop here last time, but this verse is called a mystery. Verse 20 is a mystery, but I want you to remember what a mystery in the Scriptures is. A mystery in the Scripture is a previously hidden truth that is now divinely revealed. It's not a mystery like a, a, a whodunit movie. It's a mystery that was, but now is no more. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. And so verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, the mystery, you didn't know what they were, but I'm telling you now, it's divinely revealed. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So these seven stars that is in the right hand of, uh, of Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus Christ, represents the seven angels or the seven messengers of the seven churches. Now, the reason I say angels or messengers is simply because the Greek word is angelos and you can translate it either as angel or messenger. We'll get into that when we get to chapter 2. No point in doing it now, we'll do it next time. It's simply a word, angelos, translated angel or can mean human messenger. So whether it's an angel or a human messenger that takes these letters uh, to the churches, then I don't think we need to definitively know that, but we'll talk about it next time. <clears throat> so that was the fifth descriptor, the fact that he had the seven stars in his hand, which was described as the angels of the seven churches, or the angelos, the messengers. Then the sixth descriptor is in the middle of verse 16. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So what does that mean? Well, we've already looked at Hebrews 4.12, haven't we? The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. But this phrase is going to be used again in Revelation. You might like to turn with me to chapter 19, verse 11. It's in a different context and it certainly shows the power of this sword that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now the context of verse chapter 19 is when the Lord returns with his armies. And I saw heaven opened, behold, a white horse, and he sat on and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word or the Logos of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. 
When Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation, the sword from the Lord's mouth is the only weapon that's going to be needed to, bat- to, to battle the nations. Where if we read further where the blood is up to the bridle of a horse, we don't need 50 millimetre machine guns, we don't need armoured cars. In fact, the Lord doesn't even need us following behind on white horses. The only weapon used at the Battle of Armageddon is the two-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of the Logos of God. In other words, it's not a sword that's ripping into people. What is it? It's the Word of God. Christ speaks the Word of God and it happens. Where have you seen that before? Genesis. God said and it happened. Same thing. Jesus says and it happens. He doesn't have to battle with swords or with machine. He just says it and all the people fall. That's the descriptor that we see here. The uh, two-edged sword the word of the word of God coming from the mouth of the Messiah. And then the end of verse 16 gives us a seventh descriptor. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. This is our Lord's Shekinah glory. Where have you seen the Lord's Shekinah glory before? At the Transfiguration. In, chap- in Matthew chapter 17. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. As the transfiguration took place, as uh, the, uh, the three apostles stood there, they were simply amazed. God, uh, the Lord Shekinah glory shining through. But that transfiguration was a, a glimpse into Jesus' future as he, as he sits beside his father now, shining so this is the vision that, of Christ, of the risen Lord that confronted John. Certainly totally different in appearance from the Saviour that John knew in the flesh. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ is now risen. He is glorified. He is exalted Son of God. He is the judge king who has the authority to judge all men. This is Jesus Christ the Messiah now. He's not a babe that we celebrated Christmas. He's not the, not the man, the, the God-man who went to the cross and died for all our sin. He is the judge king who is coming again. Amen? And even though John was very close to Jesus during his earthly ministry, if there was anyone close to Jesus, it was John. And John hadn't seen him for 60 years. This meeting was not a friend meeting friend reunion. In fact, John records the impact the glorified Lord had upon him. Verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Again, this is a simile. John is not dead, he just fell like a dead body would fall. Turn back with me to Daniel chapter 10. Just again to show that uh, this is not something new, that it happened to Daniel as well. So they wouldn't have, the people reading this wouldn't have been, uh, would have understood it very well. Let's hope we do. Daniel chapter 10 verse 7. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, 
and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw the great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural colour turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sounds of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. So what John did is just natural. (laughs) It's what we all would do. A vision of the exalted Christ, in fact, can only produce one thing, and that is awe and fear. So if you don't think Jesus Christ is our holy God now, you will when you stand before him. Or, if you like, fall before him. I've often wondered what it would be like to stand before the Lord. We're going to stand before the Lord at the Beamer seat as born-again believers. If you're not a believer here this morning, you're going to stand before the Lord at the Great White Throne Judgment. But I often wonder, what am I going to do? Do I walk up to the Lord and just give him a high five and say, Man, am I glad to see you, Jesus. Is that the response I'm going to have? I don't think so after reading this. I imagine every one of us is going to react the same way as John did. We're going to fall at his feet in awe, respect and fear. We're going to be clapped, we're going to collapse down because of the glory and the holiness and the majesty of whom Jesus is. But there's a consequence of this vision. And the first one was a word of comfort. You see, as Christians... When we stand or fall before the Lord, even though we are, we're awestruck and we're in fear, there's no need to worry. Because look what the Lord did immediately in verse 17. He placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. What a wonderful thing. You meet the, the glorified Lord, you fall at his feet and he reaches and says, my son and my daughter, don't be afraid. I love verse 17. John is at the feet of Jesus as a dead man. The Lord reached out. He put, him, put his hand on him and said, Don't be afraid. I love that. I love what he did. But if you sit here this morning as a non-Christian and you, you know who you are, then when you stand before the risen glorified Lord, then I'm telling you, be afraid. Be very afraid. He will not reach out and say, do not be afraid. Because if you're a non-Christian standing here, sitting here this morning, you will see the Lord at the great white throne judgment. And I'm going to turn there, and I'd like you to turn there with me to Revelation chapter 20, so you can understand that even though John, the the Lord placed his hand on John and said, do not be afraid, if you're a non-Christian, be very afraid. And here's why. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds and the sea gave up the dead which were in it And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Is your name written in the book of life? Is your name written in the land's book of life? If it is, then the Lord will say, do not be afraid. If it isn't, then be afraid. Be very afraid because your next step is going to be thrown into the lake of fire if you get to that point before repentance. But if your name is in the book of life, the end of verse 17 and following tells us why we shouldn't be afraid. The Lord gives us four reasons why there's no need to be afraid. The end of verse 17 says, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. We not need to be afraid because he's the first and the last. He's the creator, the finisher, the absolute Lord of all history. From the beginning to the end and everything in between. Eternity past to eternity future. We also need not be afraid because he's the living one. He's the resurrected Lord who eternally exists. We as Christians don't need to be afraid because he died and is alive. He conquered death. He's the crucified Son of God who provided salvation for mankind. And we need not be afraid, lastly, because he holds the key of Hades. He holds the key of the world of the dead and he holds the key of death. The one with the keys is the one who has authority, right? The one who has those keys has the authority. Our Lord has the power to send people to death and to Hades or he has the power to deliver us from them. He is the authority. At the very beginning of Revelation, Jesus presents himself to his people in majestic glory. Talk about a revelation. Talk about revealing Christ. Here we are in the first chapter and he's been revealed to us in all his glory. But what the church needs today is a new awareness of Christ and his glory. We need that unveiling of Jesus Christ. We need to see him high and lifted up. We need to see him as he is now, not as he was. Although we always sing songs and give thanks to our Lord for dying for us and there's nothing wrong with that. But we need to remember who he is now. The awesome, great, powerful, risen Lord. And I really do believe there's a dangerous absence of awe and reverence in our worship in churches today. We're boasting about standing on our own feet instead of falling at his feet as John did if we stand before him. Be careful how we worship. Make sure we know who we're worshipping. But as the scripture goes on, there's one other thing that the Lord uh, commands John, and that's in verse 19. Therefore write the things which you have seen, which he's already told him about the churches. He also says, write the things which are and write the things which will take place after these things. To the best of my knowledge, the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that contains an inspired outline of the contents. I love it. It breaks it into three places. It's a three-point sermon. got to be good if it's got three points. 
The things which you have seen refers to the vision of Revelation chapter 1. He's to write about that, which we obviously have and he did. The things which are, the second part of it, refers to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. They're the things that are happening right at that moment, the special messages to the seven churches, which we'll start a look at next time. As I mentioned before, this verse, chapters 2 and 3, is a time where the glorified Lord reveals the personal needs in our churches and in our own hearts. It's the, the Lord, the glorified Lord, walking in the midst of our churches, walking in the midst of our church. And at the end of each of the churches, or most of them, he says, He, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So when we go through them, he that hath an ear, you better hear what the Spirit is saying to those churches. And then the third point is the, the things which will take place after these things. So you have the vision, you have the churches, and then he wants him to write about what's going to take place after that. And that's where chapter 4 comes in. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I heard like the sound of the trumpet, so we know what that means now, speaking with me. Now it says, this trumpet voice, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So he's seen what was the vision, what is the churches. Then I believe John went out of that trance and then sometime later, don't know when, he goes into another trance, we saw in, in verse 2, and he goes up to see the things which will be. <coughs> as I said earlier, as I conclude, today's church needs a fresh glimpse of the glorified Christ. We really do. We need to see him seated at the right hand of God in all his splendour, his majesty, the fact that he is judge, he is king. And like John, as finite beings that we are, we must fall at his feet with a sense of awe, with a sense of fear, as we gaze on the, the, the majesty of our infinite Lord keeping in mind that as we fall on in front of him with fear, he comes along and he says, don't be afraid. It's okay. I'm alive. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I'm the one who holds the keys. We need that sense of awe. And as we do that, as we gain that sense of awe of seeing Jesus Christ as he really is now, we'll be able to come away with a renewed sense of our, of our service to, to him and our, our worship to him. You can ask the question, is our service and our worship fleshly? Is it, is it self-giving? Do you do it for yourself? Or is our service and worship found acceptable in the sight of those eyes like fire? We're going to see in chapters 2 and 3 that the living Christ walks in the midst of his church even today, weighing up its worship, weighing up the service that we are doing each individually. And in those chapters 2 and 3 we're going to be shown that some are just playing church. Some of those churches on those seven, they're just, they're just playing. And, God, and Jesus Christ will pick that out. 
He's going to pick out and show that some of them are just compromisers. They're just compromising the truth. They're compromising everything. And this Jesus Christ who is walking amongst them tells the angels or the messenger, tell this church this. Some, two of them, are going to be shown to be okay. Which is real good. They say two out of seven ain't bad. We're going to see that in chapters 2 and 3. And so if nothing else, just the knowledge that the Lord is walking amongst the churches, even, even just be at the seven at this stage, He is walking amongst us now with the lampstand. And if nothing else, it should cause us, each one of us, to walk prudently before the omniscient Lord, understanding that He is here in the midst of His church. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the revelation that we've been able to see in this wonderful book. We thank you, Lord, that you took the time to reveal your Son, your glorified Son, to us, to John, to the people of those churches. Lord, we look forward to understanding why Jesus Christ needed to be revealed. We look forward to understanding the the churches that are coming up and the problems they were having as the glorified Lord walked among them. Lord, help us to understand that that is happening to us. What is our worship like to, to our risen Lord? What is our service like to our risen Lord? Lord, only you know. And I pray that as we look upon this, this figure, as John did, and we fall down before him, that we can understand just what John saw. And uh, Father, being encouraged, be comforted in the knowledge that that is our God who holds the keys and the authority to this heaven and this earth. We thank you for this revelation. We ask that you would bless us with it, help us to think upon it, and we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Sovereign God